technology, the internet, GPS in the palm of your hand, autonomous operation. Technology is a driver of our times. Since its founding in 1958 in the midst of the Cold War, DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, has been a driver of technology. Welcome to Voices from DARPA, a window onto DARPA's core of program managers. Their job, to redefine what is possible. My name is Ivan Amato, and I'm your DARPA host. Today, I'm pleased to have with me in the studio Dr. Joseph Evans, a program manager since 2015 in the agency's Strategic Technology Office. That's the office which focuses on mixing and matching component technologies into networks of capabilities that can adapt to all kinds of battlefield threats and that can foist surprise on adversaries. Currently on leave from the University of Kansas in Lawrence, where he is a professor of electrical engineering and computer science, Joe brings to DARPA interests in advanced networking and communications technologies, especially as these apply to large-scale wireless communications and data links in ever more networked battle spaces and everyday living spaces. In the private sector, Joe co-founded NetGames USA, a network gaming company acquired by Microsoft in 2000. He also was a partner and chief scientist at the company Ascend Intelligence, which developed the tactical ground reporting system for DARPA and the U.S. Army. This system was widely deployed in Iraq and Afghanistan to help warfighters with situational awareness. Joe was personally on site in these conflicts to help refine the system. In addition to many other professional involvements, Joe flies planes, skippers boats, skis, runs, and plays guitar, including many years ago in a band called Nasty, Brutish, and Short. Dr. Joe Evans, welcome to the studio. Thank you. Before we talk about some of the programs you run, with names like Geospatial Cloud Analytics, Shared Spectrum Access for Radar and Communications, and Secure Handhelds on Assured Resilient Networks at the Tactical Edge, known more mercifully uh, by the acronym SHARE, uh, I would like to know something about where your interests come from. How did you get interested in, say, science and, and electrical engineering um, and the electromagnetic spectrum, which, as I look at your portfolio, seems to provide uh, the thematic background of your interests? My interests are maybe uh, hereditary. <laughs> Both grandfathers were electrical engineers, as was my father. Um, they uh, were involved in ver various things. My uh, grandfather my mother's side was involved in electrical engineering, for, did public projects for the Navy, and you know, uh, did some work for three-letter agencies back when you couldn't <laughs> say the names of those agencies. Um, and, no uh, such agency. Uh, no, such, the, no such agency, exactly. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then on my father's side, he was involved in uh, early um, broadcasting back in the 1920s. Uh, when that's when, when radio was really new and becoming a household uh, appliance. Exactly. Exactly. And so, um, you know, there's been this long-standing interest in radio, radio frequency engineering, spectrum, and then, you know, fast forward to when I was a kid, then, you know, you know, exposed to science fiction, Star Trek, and things like that in the 1960s. I remember asking my father, you know, could we make a something like the communicator in the garage? And, you know, no, well, no, that's like, too far out there. You can't get the components, blah, 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 blah that, that are that small. And then, 
you know, fast forward to the 1990s and suddenly you have a flip phone that looks like a Star Trek communicator. You know, I think uh, yeah, I've had this longstanding interest in the, those types of uh, wireless communication types of topics. And it's been wonderful to watch through my career how that technology has really evolved to the point where you can do some of these things that, that seemed like that were science fiction. Okay, uh, when I was so it sounds up. like you know, <laughs> even as a kid, you were really immersed not just in knowing about radio, hearing it, using it, but knowing something about it. I mean, one, yeah. one of the, so what I would love for you to do, if you can, is talk a little bit about the electromagnetic spectrum. I've always found it to be a kind of miraculous thing, right? I mean, it's invisible. We have no sense of it directly bodily. And yet we can uh, use our cell phones. We turn the radio on. All of this stuff is going on there. So when you think of the electromagnetic spectrum, what is in your mind? I think of it really as a as a kind of shared resource like the air, if you might want to put it that way. You know, the ability to communicate through this medium. Um, you know, obviously there's a lot of technology behind the, you know, how you didn't build uh, RF devices and and so RF forth. Being radio frequency. Radio frequency devices. Really, in the end, it's a it's a shared uh, resource um, that we can use for various things like communications, radio, for sensing, radars, uh, um, those ty- types of things. And it's something that um, I think as the technology's evolved, we can be more sophisticated about how we use that, that shared resource of you know, the RF spectrum. I, I will say it is pretty uh, ethereal, um, but it is one of those things that you, know, you, you kind of have to visualize how the sharing is going on in this multidimensional space in order to make use of it uh, more, more smartly. Well, actually, that gives me a good excuse to, to start in on some of your programs, including one called the Advanced RF Mapping Program, because in some ways, the technology you seek there is trying to make the invisible visible, trying to make what's going on in the electromagnetic spectrum visible. So can you talk to me a little bit about this program, which is at the tail end, right, and transitioning even to uh, the Marine Corps? That's correct. Uh, So this is a a nice example where you can sort of talk about the original idea of it, uh, its status now, and and what you think it's going to do for uh, military capabilities. Advanced RF mapping is really uh, known by the name uh, radio map that's that's the the shorthand we use for that program and so the radio map program is really trying to provide that basic spectrum situational awareness what's happening in the spectrum as you say it's a, it's invisible unless we make it visible through computer visualization tools and so um, it's a mix of uh, sensing what's out there so turning existing radios, things like that, into RF sensors so you can see what, essentially see what's going on in the spectrum. You can sample what's going on in the spectrum. You bring that back over tactical networks, in our case, that the Marine Corps is using, um, but you bring those back to essentially a, a PC, think of a laptop, and uh, you run some algorithms on it and generate a visualization of what's happening in the, in the spectrum. In, and in a given area. In, so. a, in a given area. Mm-hmm. And so if you may have um, a military unit that's operating in a particular area, they generally, uh, many of those um, Marines or soldiers have radios. You use those radios as your sensors. You bring back you know, all the measurements you can from that area to that location where you can run the algorithms and generate 
what looks like a, a, a heat map, a colored visualization of what's happening in that geographic area in the spectrum. The map shows you how much energy is there by the color of the of the map, kind of the way so that how you... how strong the signals are in a particular frequency? How, how strong the signals are. Um, if you think of like the weather radar that you see, um, you know, on the evening news, um, that type of visualization is the way you, you look at the spectrum and you can see, you know, essentially what's radiating hot in your area, and that may be of interest. You may be curious about what that is. Um, so we can we have a display that shows, you know, kind of here's what's happening over all the spectrum, and then we have a display that shows you, okay, at this particular frequency, at this particular part of the spectrum, say the frequencies where the Wi-Fi networks are, you can see where the hotspots are. You can see how they are radiating uh, away from their their uh, base stations. And can, can you give just a points. sense? This is a new kind of situational awareness, right? I mean, I can look around and see if there are, maybe there are adversaries. I can see what kind of military assets that we have and adversaries might have. This is, has always been sort of more of an invisible sort of, uh, you know, set of phenomena. So as yes. a warfighter, if I know this now, yes. how might I put that information to use? So, so as a warfighter, it's, it's very valuable because you can start to identify maybe signals that you did not expect to be there. So a particular example that we have from some Marine Corps exercises was uh, a Lance Corporal was simply really that day playing with the radio map uh, display and uh, saw something that was unusual. And it turned out to be the sniper team that was out there hiding and not visible otherwise other than in their uh, RF spectrum emissions as they're using their, their radios. So there are things like that, that that allow you to identify what's happening um, in the spectrum, and then you can decide if that's militarily important or, or not. You may decide, well, that's an odd signal. Maybe I should send somebody over to take a look. Things like, things like that are possible courses of action that you're, you're presented once you can finally see what's happening in the, in the RF spectrum. Right. And now radio map is getting to what we think of here at DARPA as, as one of the best finish lines that a technology development program can get to, which is to say, you're going to hand this off, in this case, right, to, to the Marine Corps. So what, what are the next steps for that to happen? What we're doing with the, the Marine Corps is working with them on uh, some of these various exercises and, and experiments. And in parallel, the Marine Corps has been very forward-leaning in spectrum operations, essentially, uh, EM spectrum operations. They have been uh, adding it to their doctrine. They have been uh, looking at uh, uh, techniques, procedures, how they might use the electromagnetic spectrum in a warfighting sense. And so they've been forward leading on, on kind of some of these ideas of if they have the technology. And so what we're doing, uh, DARPA's developed the technology and we are uh, transitioning it to the Marines where they can then start to use it um, in, in exercises first and then in the, in the forces we roll forward. So they have you know, identified this as a key technology that will be inserted as they roll forward in their budget planning and their program planning. All right, so let's talk about another program. Now, this one, not as far along. It's not about to be transitioned yet. This one goes by an acronym SPARC. There's two S's in the front of that, S-S-P-A-R-C. That stands for Shared Spectrum Access for Radar and Communication. This does relate to what we were just talking about, especially in the sense of where, where there's a very busy electromagnetic spectrum, which is to say where all kinds of people and devices want to kind of have access to that. So there you're exploring something called spectrum sharing. And maybe we can just talk about that 
concept and why that's becoming ever more important. Sure. Uh, so one of the, the um, issues with the spectrum is that it is very heavily used. You can just think of your uh, cellular, your cell phones. They are using more and more of the spectrum. There's Wi-Fi. And there's millions uh, and millions and of them. Millions. It may even be billions by now in terms of Wi-Fi and cell, cell phones. In fact, I'm pretty sure it is. Um, and so there are, there, there's this heavy use of the RF spectrum. That is a, a new modern phenomenon. If you look back in the um, you know, 1960s, 70s, even the 80s, um, most of the RF spectrum use tended to be governmental and military. And so the, the advent of, of cell phones and then laptops and iPads and so forth and with Wi-Fi. connected Wi-Fi, refrigerators for that matter. Connected refrigerators. Mm-hmm. All of that has started to, to really be the dominant uh, use of the, of the spectrum, which means that the military has to uh, adapt to having less and less freedom to, to move in that spectrum. And so uh, one of the things that we're doing in the SPARC program is looking at this idea of sharing between communications, um, tactical communications and even maybe commercial communications and military radars. We have looked at the um, Navy's radars and how they might interact with uh, or use the same spectrum as uh, LTE cell phones in in some spectrum bands. And uh, we've also looked at um, how military systems can share with military systems. So, for example, we've done some things uh, that uh, have transitioned to the Army where they're uh, developing a radar that will use the radar for communications with other radar sites. Uh, and so there's uh, to get an improved radar overall system. And so there are things like that where that smarter use of the spectrum enables the military to use less and the commercial world has this constant pressure that it needs more spectrum because of use by individuals and, and uh, the individual consumer. <laughs> right, and this, this sounds like it relates to um, some work that colleagues in the Microsystems Technology Office uh, are working on. I'm referring here to the Spectrum Collaboration Challenge, which also is really all about trying to bring this whole idea of spectrum sharing, almost like a new ethic on how to use and think about the spectrum into a you know, really wide context, you know, where, where even the, the radios all have to get smarter and, and know what's going on. Is, is there a connection? Absolutely. Going back um, a, little, a little bit in my personal history, in 2003-2005, I was a program manager over at the National Science Foundation. And um, one of the things that I started there was a program looking at taking smart radios and doing dynamic access of the spectrum. And and for for listeners who might not have heard that term before, smart radio, can you just define Uh, Sure, sure. So so smart radio is really a software-defined radio in the sense of the radio... Um, characteristics. It's uh, the frequencies it uses, the types of waveforms it sends over the electromagnetic spectrum. Those are all and defined the most, by sorry, but the, the most like familiar waveforms being something like AM and FM. FM. Yep. So there's uh, yeah, amplitude modulation, frequency modulation at the at the lowest level. But then there's you know you can think of Wi-Fi as being a have, having a waveform of uh, that it uses. So all of these um, different types of waveforms can be 
basically implemented using software these days because of the, the vast increase in computing power available as well as improvements in the RF devices uh, themselves. Right, radio so radio is capable of doing that. We think of those as a yeah. smart radio. Yeah, exa- ex- exactly. And, and, and those capabilities are getting smarter and smarter. More and more uh, capability is being jammed into you know, a smaller and smaller handset, um, you know, like your cell phone and uh, tactical radios uh, in, the, in the military case. So, you know, when I was at the National Science Foundation at NSF, started this program on dynamically accessing the spectrum, um, that is, using different frequency bands to, um, you know, essentially share the spectrum more, more intelligently. Uh, that was academic work. A lot of that work has um, matured to the point where that's starting to show up in um, chips and systems that can be used throughout both the commercial world as well as the military world. MTO, the Microelectronics Technology Office, is helping to to move that wave of technology forward by making better devices and creating better techniques through things like the Spectrum uh, Challenge SC2, where they're looking at different techniques for sharing the the spectrum. So there's definitely been a a movement throughout um, academia, industry, to try to make the, the Spectrum access like I say, smarter um, than we've traditionally done. Um, the traditional way of accessing the spectrum or has been the traditional bureaucratic, top-down types of ways of managing the spectrum, the FCC, uh, Federal Communications Right, which normally Commission. would say, you get to use this frequency at this time under these conditions, and what we're talking is making this all more fluid so like all of these connected yeah, devices exactly. can, can figure out how to make best use of, of this incredible resource, the electromagnetic spectrum. A- a- absolutely. And both the FCC and on the government side, there's the NTIA, National Telecommunication Information Agency, I think I got that right, are uh, looking at um, these new technologies as kind of the wave of the, of the future. And we're hoping that some of these technologies that uh, DARPA is developing will make their job easier, <laughs> basically, in the, in the future on the policy side. Okay, so let's just touch on one other of your programs. So, so I know that some of your pro- programs center on uh, innovative ways of assuring access, you know, whenever and wherever, uh, perhaps even using things like drones as, as temporary kind of, you know, Wi-Fi routers, uh, that sort of thing. The program I, I want to talk to you about here, though, is, is called Geospatial Cloud Analytics. It's about doing a lot more with satellite data than it has been done before, things like using data about sort of geospatial characteristics such as crops in distress and maybe using that sort of data to predict things like uh, security-relevant, well, phenomena like social unrest, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So um, talk to me about that. I mean, what kind of data is available that you're hoping to, uh, you know, access in new ways and then how that might be valuable? Some of the genesis of this idea, really the the major genesis, uh, was the vast amount of new geospatial data that's being created from commercial sources. Um, so traditionally, the satellite imagery uh, marketplace was government. It was uh, special government satellites taking pictures for uh, either military use or for 
things like agricultural predictions, things like that. Think Landsat from NASA, uh, some of those types of uh, capabilities. That's radically changed in the past couple of years with the launching of um, many new commercial satellites. Some are already launched, some are um, in various stages of deployment, and um, what that's providing is much more data on a daily basis. One of the ways I like to, to describe this is, you know, back when DARPA was founded, back in 1958, it was really founded in response to Sputnik being launched. And uh, uh, some level of panic uh, in the populace about, oh, well, the Soviets can see what I'm doing all the time. They're flying over with this satellite and, and they can see me in my backyard. Well, um, what's interesting now is we're finally getting to a point where there are enough commercial satellites up there that they are really are going over every day and imaging everywhere. And it's one of those things that uh, was um, unexpected, I think, from a governmental side, what the impact of that could be. The, the, the vast amount of new and useful data um, that might come from the commercial side. So, and this is uh, pictures, uh, EO uh, data, as they, they say, electro-optical, as they say in the, in the biz. It can be other things. Uh, there are satellite constellations that are collecting RF uh, data as uh, they, they fly over. Uh, there are commercial satellite constellations that are doing radar imaging as well. Combined, all of these are a vast new data source to understand what's happening in, in the world. It is so much data, however, that people can't keep up. It is uh, a fire hose of data to an extent that's uh, never been, been really seen before. Um, people talk about big data. This is bigger than bigger data, um, just in terms of the amount of data that's being collected from these satellites. So people can't keep up. They can't look at all the, this data. So then you have to do um, automated processes, machine learning types of, of algorithms. You really have to set up the, the pipelines of, of processing to get useful information out of all of that data. And um, what we're trying to do in the geospatial cloud analytics program is make use of all that data to set up the architectures to do that and then set up essentially business models so that DOD customers can get that information rather than just the data um, in, a, in a sensible way. So the geospatial part is of the GCA, of the geospatial cloud analytics uh, program, geospatial part is all the new uh, satellite constellations, all that new geospatial data. There is the cloud part, which is, well, you need you put it in the computing clouds. The, uh, uh, you know, you hear about Google Cloud and Amazon Web Services. So it becomes Those, widely accessible. So it becomes widely uh, accessible and then also can be processed at high speeds in those cloud resources. So you can actually crunch through all of that data in the cloud in order to produce a result out the back that then a warfighter can purchase, essentially. And this is where kind of where the analytics come in. So I, I imagine now the idea is, is to apply analytics and various kinds of models where you try to now connect this raw data to things that are even more interesting than raw data, which is what it might it mean. We, I refer right. to, the, to the conditions of crops and how that can lead to food security or insecurity, and then that can relate to how 
um, you know, groups of people are behaving. Exactly. So, so for example, uh, as you say, one of the thrusts we have is looking at food security and understanding what is happening in particular regions of, of the world in terms of um, how the wheat crop is developing over, over the year. And uh, essentially using these new data sources that are so much uh, fresher than it ever was before, using that new fresh data that comes in daily or maybe weekly in some cases, but much uh, more frequently than in the past, using that to then crunch these analytics algorithms that predict, you know, that this crop is going to do well this year or this crop uh, of wheat is, is going to be poor in this part of the world. And what we've uh, seen over even the past few years is that crop failures can lead to social instability. The Arab Spring is cited as one of those examples where that was kind of the spark that uh, led to the Arab Spring. And so if we get our uh, a little bit of more advanced warning, maybe we can improve stability by um, you know identifying that there may be a need for uh, aid going to uh, particular parts of the world, or at least DOD can position itself so that it's not a, a surprise. So that's one of the challenge problems in the geospatial analytics uh, program. Another one of our problem areas that we've been looking at is um, illegal fishing. There's a real problem in certain parts of the world with uh, illegal and unlicensed fishing. Um, there's also uh, non-governmental organizations looking at this problem as well, but we're using that as a way to try to identify when vessels may be showing up in particular territorial waters where they're unwanted. So we're trying to uh, use the program to explore that space and really to push the limit of what you can get from this geospatial, commercial geospatial data. Right. Now, I don't usually think of the Defense Department as, as policing, uh, you know, fishing practices around the world. So can you just explain a little bit about how that connects to what might be a DARPA and DOD interest? Sure. Uh, and and so in, in the case of illegal fishing, it is a also a, a good proxy problem for general uh, maritime situational awareness types of, of problems. So, you know, the Navy may uh, desire just an understanding of what vessels are in a particular area and on a kind of large scale. Um, you know, I want to know where, you know, all of the traffic is in the Pacific. <laughs> um, and so these new commercial data sources are providing a way to bring together satellite imagery, radar, satellite data, Things such as uh, AIS, which is one of the beacons that's on uh, commercial vessels that say, I'm here and this is who I am. Um, there are various things like that that can be brought together just to improve overall the uh, uh, understanding of what's happening in the maritime domain. Right. It's interesting you, you bring this up. Just last night, I was looking at, at a website that tries to track as many of the aircraft that are in the air at any one time. And it uses something much like an AIS system, one of those beacon, yep. you know, here I am systems. I was amazed to learn that at the moment I was looking at this real-time website that there were 14,000 aircraft craft in the air at, at that moment. So so this in some ways is, is a little bit related more in that maritime kind of context. Exactly. And so in the maritime context, the trick is that if a, uh, a vessel doesn't want to be seen, it will turn off its AIS beacon. And so then you're interested in using some of those other data sources from the, the satellite data and so forth to understand, you know, uh, well, there really is a vessel there. It just turned off its beacon. Right. Uh, so you might go radio dark, but yeah. that doesn't mean that you can't be detected. Exactly. Exactly. 
Okay, so um, we're kind of getting toward the end of our discussion here, but I, because you you are someone who has experience in academia, you have experience uh, in the government at NSF before uh, uh, coming here, uh, you, you have experience in uh, the private sector, uh, you're someone who has a kind of interesting view on the overall innovation ecosystem. And so uh, now that you're here at DARPA, uh, I'm just wondering, you know, what you are discovering about where a place like this fits into that overall innovation ecosystem. Obviously, DARPA has been on the leading edge of, of technology for decades. Uh, you know, certainly I've been working on and around the internet for most of my career. And, you know, DARPA was out there first in terms of networking uh, te technology. So it's both uh, um, led the way and opened the doors for, for things happening in the commercial uh, world. And I mentioned, you know, the spectrum sharing work. Well, at the same time as I was at NSF working on, on that, there was another program manager over here at DARPA working on similar issues, and we frequently would work together to move that, that technology forward. So it's, it's always been on the leading edge. One of the interesting things to me coming to, to DARPA has been really the opportunity to understand and um, even in more depth than I thought I had, the specific needs for the military. It's been very eye-opening what, uh, you know, what problems there are that need to be solved. And one of the things that's been fun is putting together programs that kind of address those, those specific needs. So, um, you know, DARPA both does the, the kind of move the technology forward, but uh, the other part that's been very interesting to me is that DARPA really, I believe, is the key agency in terms of military innovation for the warfighter. The opportunities to think about the um, kind of big problems facing the Department of Defense, facing the military as we move forward, I'm not sure where else you do that other than a place like DARPA. <laughs> All right. Now, in addition to your work as a program manager, as a, as a professor at the University of Kansas, uh, I mentioned in, in the intro that you have these other experiences. Uh, so you're a pilot. I saw a picture of you. Uh, looked like you were skippering a boat in actually pretty scary uh, conditions, <laughs> looked like to me. Um, do you think these kinds of interests have some kind of influence in the way you think about electrical engineering and about how you do do your program management. I do think that one of the things that has been helpful from those experiences coming to a place like, like DARPA is that the opportunities offered to a program manager are very much like skippering a boat or flying an airplane in the sense that you, know, you have great freedom to do uh, what, what you want. You operate within the limits of the technology, whether <laughs> it's the airplane or the, or the sailboat, but um, you have great freedom to kind of set your course. And um, I really do think that that's uh, you know, a wonderful opportunity opportunity were given. Since you've been here in, in Washington, have you been able to get, get into a plane and uh, fly <laughs> the skies? Uh, around here, not so much. Uh, the, with all the restricted airspace <laughs> around here, it, this is m probably the single most challenging place in the, in the, in the country to uh, just, uh, you know, go for uh, a fun pleasure flight. <laughs> well, we're also near a lot of water. And we're near a lot of water. I've done a little bit better on that and do occasionally get a chance to go, go sailing. <laughs> All right. Happy to hear it. So there is one biographic <laughs> detail that, that I find particularly amusing. I mentioned it earlier before. When you were a student at Princeton, uh, you and some buddies were in a band called Nasty, Brutish, and Short, which, you know, I guess that's a phrase from 
uh, Tom Hobbs, uh, one of the less optimistic <laughs> or more <laughs> pessimistic uh, views on life. Uh, I guess that was 17th century thinker. Uh, so uh, this does not represent your view on life now, no, I take it. absolutely, absolutely not. Uh, although it was a pretty uh, uh, fun name. Uh, maybe it's a more described grad school than... <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, but yeah, no, that was that was a wonderfully fun uh, uh, band. Um, uh, the, the list of characters from there, uh, you know, uh, have ended up as uh, university president, a university provost, and I think the, a uh, senior technology leader at a place that does business with DARPA. So I won't mention it. But <laughs> well, and a DARPA program manager, and a DARPA evidently. program manager, exactly. <laughs> we are really, you know, uh, just a few minutes left. Is there? Anything uh, about technology in general, about DARPA, about your programs that uh, did not come up during our discussion that you think would be of interest to our listeners? Just a general thought, and that is that one of the other things that's really been wonderful about being at DARPA has been um, seeing the breadth of new ideas that um, folks in the in the science and technology industry are working on and and bring in and dis- discuss with us, and it's a, a a broad vision that that you don't really get in a lot of other um, um, parts of either the academic world or um, the commercial world. Um, and the thing that, that really comes through from that is that as much as technology has evolved and as mature as some uh, ideas are, there are still you know vast opportunities out there for continued innovation. It really has been you know a good experience seeing that and seeing all the the new ideas that folks uh, are still bringing forward. Yeah, I mean that just makes me think of about you know the some hundred program managers here, and when you really think about all of the kind of individual technologies they're developing, we we are in this era now of of a, almost a kind of a mix and match. Where, where you get into a permutation game, and this is what Strategic Technology Office is kind of about, uh, um, where all of these existing technologies can, can, can come together into amazing diversity of, of assemblages, right? Absolutely, and that is one of the wonderful things about being in a, a, one of the systems offices at DARPA, like the Strategic Technology Offices, is that you do get to see these technologies across the board that are helping to you know, provide a capability that will make the difference for the U.S. and for the for the warfighter. So it's it's really um, fun to to uh, see how you can put those individual innovative ideas together to create an even better innovative idea. All right. Well, you've you've given us a bit of a bit of a snapshot about you and and the work you're doing uh, in the Strategic Technology Office. So, uh, Joe, I just want to thank you for spending this time with me. Great. Well, thank you very much. Really, really enjoyed it. And thanks, listeners, for sharing this time with us. I hope you join us again for the next Voices from DARPA. For more information about Joe Evans, the programs he and his colleagues run in the Strategic Technology Office, and the other breakthrough technologies DARPA is working on, visit DARPA.mil. And for links that enable you to download this podcast, go to the Voices from DARPA page on DARPA's website.